Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview-style podcast. Those interviews are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved, like all of my guests are, is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to competitive teams, racers, rock crawlers, business owners, employees, media, and private park owners, men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active and off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world we live and love and call off-road. Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis tires deliver. Choose Maxxis. Dread victoriously. Have you seen Four Low Magazine yet? Four Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Four Low is the magazine for you. Four Low cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit fourlowmagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's Conversations with Big Rich, we have David Adams. David is out of uh, southern Utah. I'm not sure exactly where he's from or where he got his start. Just like you guys, uh, you're going to learn a lot of information. You may know Dave from um, Truck Night on America, and he's been in a lot of videos. He's a a disabled wheeler. He has a hand-controlled vehicle. And uh, Dave's been a friend for a long time and done a lot of stuff in Moab, but now he's a Sand Hollow native, you might say, or one of the uh, Sand Hollowites. I don't know how you guys call each other. So (laughs) anyway, David, thank you so much for coming on board and uh, sharing your story with us. You're welcome, Rich. It's my pleasure. Glad to be here. Excellent. So Dave, um, let's, let's find out all about you. So where were you born and raised? So I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Um, my dad was a military back during the Vietnam War, and that was the last base that he was stationed in, and they liked it, and so my parents stayed there, and so that's where I grew up, was on the Front Range in Colorado. Awesome. I know a lot of people from the Front Range, especially from Colorado Springs, because we raced out there at Ram Off-Road Park for a number of years. Right, right, yep. So how were things when you were a kid out there? I mean, it you're of that age um, to where things are probably still pretty rural. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. Yeah. When I was growing up in Colorado Springs, it was still, a, I mean, a fairly small little town. I mean, you know, you go back and you look at it now and town has just changed so much where, where I grew up. I mean, it was all fields up north of that. I mean, it was actually at, when you would drive up to the Air Force Academy, you're driving in the middle of nowhere, you right. know, and. <laughs> And now it's dang near full solid all the way up to Monument, Colorado. So it's changed a lot. Right. And uh, so your dad was military. Um, Was he with the Air Force or was he with the Army base down there? Okay. Yeah, he was Air Force. He actually had just graduated from college in 67 and he got a draft notice. And so he showed up to the local, you know, Army recruiter and they said infantry or artillery. 
And he said, no, thank you, and went next door and joined as an officer in the Air Force. Perfect. Perfect. And uh, what was what was his duties in the Air Force? Um, he was an accountant. He was an accountant. That was that was his career. So he oh. was he actually spent a year in Thailand, you know, working with a lot of the the um, personnel that were over there as they would fly missions over into Vietnam. He was one of them that was responsible of giving them basically their bribe money. So, hey, if you get shot down, here's $10,000 cash to try to help bribe your way out of the country. And so he did all that kind of stuff and it's got some interesting stories. He was one of the, the last few in country as a um, basically an accountant, making sure that everything was accounted and taken care of as the Viet Cong were literally coming into the streets in Vietnam. Oh, wow. Okay, that's that's wild. He, so he was there at the embassy then, probably. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Interesting. So then, um, growing up, you, did your dad? Did you get to see your dad a lot as a young child, or you know, with the? With, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, yeah. By the time I was born, he'd gotten out. He got uh, he got rift after the war, so he'd been in for nine years. And then he got into the civilian world as a, as an accountant and, you know, various different office manager and stuff like that. Okay. And uh, so what was, what was your life like as a, as a young child in that area? Did you, uh, did you get out, you guys get outdoors a lot or, you know. I was always really into the outdoors. Um, I grew up very active in the Boy Scouts of America, you know, all the way from a little Cub Scout at age eight and then, you know, working through all of that, you know, as a teenager through high school, I was very, very active in Boy Scouts. You know, I worked at a bunch of different summer camps up in the, the Colorado Rockies. I mean, we were going camping every month, you know, obviously with my disability, I, I can only do so much, although back then it wasn't as bad as it has progressed now. So I could never, you know, run and jump and stuff like that, but I could ride a bike, I could hike, I could do things like that. And so I was very active in the outdoors. Um, I'm the youngest of four by a significant margin. My nearest sibling is six years older than me. Oh, wow. Okay. So kind of as I got to high school, I was almost like an only child. And so the, my, you know, my friends I had in the scouting and stuff like that were, were huge to me. And, and I just loved every opportunity I could to get out in the outdoors and enjoy that opportunity, especially, you know, growing up there in Colorado. I loved it. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, right there in the, the front range like that, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. You come down out of the mountains and yeah, you're still at a high, pretty high elevation, you know, uh-huh. over 5,000, 5,500 feet there at the base. But, you know, you get into the real high elevations and the change is really dramatic. Um, you know, I, I remember that going up onto Pike's Peak and uh, yep. looking out and going, holy, I mean, it just like, that's a wall drop right there. So you guys, right. your camping opportunities and everything were real close, but up at high, high elevations. Yeah. Yeah. The summer camp that I worked out there and the, the Pikes Peak council, I mean, I think our base camp was at like 9,200 feet or something like that. Jeez. Wow. Yeah. And, um, do, do you mind talking about your disability? Oh, no, not at all. Okay. I'm happy to. Um, and what is it that, that you're suffering from? So it's a, an interesting name. It's called Charcot Marie Tooth, and I'll spell that. It's C-H-A-R-C-O-T dash Marie, M-A-R-I-E dash Tooth, T-O-O-T-H. And it's a, it's a silly name that most people have no idea what it means. And basically, it's the three French 
surgeons who discovered it in the late 1800s. Okay. So that's where the name comes from. Um, but basically what it is, is it is a peripheral neuropathy. And so it affects the nerves exclusively in my extremities, both the sensory neurons as well as the motor neurons. So because the motor neurons are affected, they don't tell the muscles the correct thing to do. So the muscles can't work right. And then with the sensory neuron damage, they also result in me having less feeling and less sensation in my extremities, especially the farther you get away from my head. Okay. All right. Interesting. Thank you for that that explanation and definition. Um, when you first said that, I was like, you know, Sharknado, you know, you get, right. you get bit yeah. by a flying shark or something, you know. Yeah, yeah people always wonder what's wrong with your teeth. Wait a minute, what? <laughs> How does that happen? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Exactly. So, is it a is it a type of like muscular dystrophy or? Yeah, it's a very fringe type of muscular dystrophy. A lot of muscular dystrophy affect more your central nervous system, spine, you know, liver, lungs, stuff like that. Mine doesn't affect any of my central organs. Um, mine is all just completely peripheral nerves. So it's, oh. it doesn't affect my life expectancy. It doesn't expect, you know, any brain function, anything like that. Okay. So it's just your body not doing what, what you want it to do. Okay. Exactly. I always tell, like when I used to be a teacher, I would always explain it to my students. It's basically like having this um, uh, stereo and your head unit works great and your speakers work great and your wiring sucks. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> got it. That's kind of what I got. My wiring sucks. So therefore the message doesn't get through and it gets garbled as it's traveling. And what age were you when they discovered that you, you had an issue? So I was diagnosed when I was age six, which for a Charcot-Marie tooth or what they call CMT is quite young. Um, most people aren't diagnosed with it usually until middle age. Uh, it's a late onset disease. Uh, but I was on a, a t-ball team. I remember playing, you know, t-ball back when I was, you know, four or five years old. And they, the coach sent us down to go run around this tree. And I was still on my way down there when my, all the rest of the players on my team were on the way back. Okay. And my mom was like, hmm, well, that's kind of different. And so we went through this process of trying to figure out what was wrong. And eventually, I discover it through a nerve conduction study, which actually shows the the great reduction in the the speed and transition of the nerve message as it travels down through the the body. Okay. So I was diagnosed at a very young age, which so is pretty much all I've ever known. Okay. Okay. I I, I was wondering because you know when you started off with t-ball, I didn't know if maybe you know all of a sudden instead of swinging at the ball, you started swinging at your teammates or something. So, you know, if right, it's not, right. you know, it's not connecting. So yeah. then, um, what, what level of, uh, of scouting did you get through? I went through all of it. I mean, I was an Eagle Scout, got my Eagle Scout when I was 14. Very good. Um, and then at 14, I became very active in the Order of the Arrow, which is kind of the, the honored camper version of, you know, Boy Scouts and and stayed with that. And I was active in in national and even international events all the way up until my 30s. So. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah, I bailed. Uh -huh. I bailed on it as soon as I got my driver's license. I, I'd got my <laughs> I'd got my Eagle at 14 because um, I well, I got presented with my Eagle at 14. I was 13 when I when I was able to um, I could have gotten it. But I was waiting for a friend to complete it so we could do a double ceremony. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it would have been really close, but <laughs> could have yeah. pulled it off. So yeah. then, um, what did you do as your Eagle project? Do you remember? Um, I actually uh, built a uh, hiking trail up at the floors on Fossil Bed National Park outside of Divide, Colorado. Very good. Very good. Cool. So then, um, what was school like for you scholastically? Were you a good student? Um, being an Eagle, you know, it can go either way. <laughs> right, right. I did pretty good. Um I kind of went through this period that, you know, school wasn't cool, you know, of course, and homework was overrated because I wanted to do the things that I wanted to do. I enjoyed learning and I enjoyed some aspects of school very much, but I thought it was silly that I had to take the classes I didn't want to take, you know, and right. I actually remember having a conversation with my dad and and he said to me one day, he said, look, you need to understand you're never going to be a truck driver. You're never going to be a construction worker. You're never going to be in an industry where you're working with your hands or your body. You've got to do well in school because you've got to have a degree. Okay. And it was really kind of a wake up call for me that, you know, you're right. I, I've got to figure out a way to be able to make it in this life. And therefore, I've got to use my brain. Right. And so I, I kind of changed things a little bit and ended up doing pretty decent in high school. Um, and that's when I really fell in love kind of with my passion. That's history. I had some amazing history teachers in, in high school and then later on in college that really showed me that history is nothing more than the greatest story ever told. True. And so that's what really inspired me to, to eventually get my degree in, uh, in history teaching. And, and I did that for a long time. Oh, excellent. Okay. I'm a history buff. I, 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 when I drive, I don't listen to music. I listen to, to books on, on tape, basically, you mm -hmm. know, audible, yep. that yep. kind of thing. And through the, yep. through the library system. And I am, everything I read, it's either kind of a science fictionist type thing, you know, um, or it is history. You know, I, right. if I'm going to read a book, I want to learn something from it, not just, you know, uh, Jane Austen novels, that kind of stuff, don't interest me at all. Uh, yeah. Except for the history aspect of those things, if it's if that's what they're following, the the follow right. line. So, right. yeah, I agree. So I then, agree. so then with uh, with doing as a history teacher and going through that, well, obviously through high school, where did you go to college? So I graduated from BYU. Okay. So are you LDS then? Uh, I was raised LDS. Okay. Um, haven't been super active for a little while, but, you know, my, my parents still are, and one of my sisters still is. And, you know, I mean, some of the, the greatest people I've met, I've, I've met in the church. And, you know, there's obviously good people everywhere and bad people everywhere. Oh, but, yeah. I wasn't being judgmental. Yeah. I was just no, uh, no, I, just questioning because totally. going to BYU. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to BYU. I went on a, a two-year mission to upstate New York. Um. Absolutely had a great time in college. I, I took a lot of advantage of the different opportunities that were there. Like I went on two different study abroads. Um, I had three different internships, including my student teaching. You know, I double majored, plus had a minor. So, I mean, I, I really, I, I felt like I took advantage of it as much as I could. And and for the quality of education you get, BYU is a, a good school. I mean, right. you really get a, well, a good education and it's not it's not expensive. So it, it worked out very well for me. Excellent. Excellent. And so then, um, where what areas did you teach in? Not so my my main focus was once I got hired and I was teaching in Moab, is I taught mostly freshman world geography, 
so high school level and then sophomore world history. And then I did a little bit with, I taught debate, was a debate coach, and then also taught some government from time to time to the seniors. Okay. And uh, that first, that first stint was in Moab. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I got my first full-time teaching job was after I moved to Moab. And uh, did you get into off-road at that time or... (laughs) Actually, I kind of started getting into it before, and okay. and it's funny, you know, when I when I go back and I think about my experience, my memories, you know, what kind of got me into it. I had a paper route when I was a little kid, and so this would have been probably eighty four, you know, somewhere in that range. And I remember seeing a brand new CJ seven, and it was parked in this apartment building where I delivered my newspapers, and I just thought that is such a cool vehicle. When I get old, that's what I want. You know, and then as I got older and, you know, going through high school and into college and my disability started getting worse, I started getting to the point that I I knew that I wasn't going to be able to continue my lifestyle the way that I wanted in terms of hiking and getting out into nature. And so at that time is when I really decided that, you know, I wanted a Jeep so I could still get out and get out in nature. I could still go out and do these things. I could still go out and go camping, but I didn't have to rely on my legs in order for me to be able to get there. Right. And so by that time, my dad was actually the office manager at a Jeep dealership in Colorado Springs. Hmm. And so, I mean, we were obviously around Jeeps all the time. Funny enough, he's never owned one. He's always had, you know, Chrysler products. Um, But after I got back from my mission, I I got back to my mission in uh, 97. So the TJ had just barely came out. And I wanted one so, so bad, but, you know, I didn't have the money, didn't have, you know, the means to be able to get one. So my dad ended up helping me get a 1990 um, Cherokee, a Cherokee Pioneer. Okay. And so that was actually my daily driver when I was in college was that Jeep. And, you know, I ended up putting a little bit bigger tires on it. I was so excited because my first set of tires were a set of 30 inch by 950, you know, <laughs> just. I mean, today you, you think, I mean, heck, they come with, you know, most vehicles come with tire stock bigger than that. But I was so excited and I put a little three inch Rancho lift kit on my Cherokee and I just thought I was so cool. <laughs> and uh, I had that for about a year and I was on my way to a Christmas party and a lady ran a red light and pulled out in front of me and I T-boned her and um, ended up that Jeep got totaled. And so I took the insurance money and finally bought my CJ7 that I'd always wanted. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, that first CJ7 you saw, what color was it? Originally, it was white. Okay. And uh, it was funny. I remember seeing it there. We I met the guy at the, the mall there in Orem, Utah. And uh, he showed up with it and it had a four inch lift, you know, four inch spring under, 33 inch tires, had, you know, this um, six point roll cage in it. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And at that time, though, I didn't know how to drive a stick, and it was a manual. <laughs> and so I actually bought the Jeep, having never driven it before, and then had a very quick course in learning how to drive a manual, which was a whole different ball game for me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, literally bought the Jeep, having never driven it. I just fell in love with the look of it. Excellent. That's pretty cool. And that's still the same Jeep that you have? It is. That's the green Jeep. Yep. I picked that up in January of 1999 and we're going on what, almost 25 years together. Yep. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I've been through lots of changes. I mean, just about everything on that's been replaced, but that's the heart of the Jeep that I bought back when I was in college. 
Excellent. And so then where else, what other locations did you, did you teach in besides Moab? So um, before I moved to Moab, I substituted in the Nebo school district there in the in Utah Valley for a while. And then finally, after um, about a year after I graduated, my ex-wife and I, well, wife at the time, decided that we wanted to move to Moab because I'd found Moab during college. I actually joined the, the Lone Peak Four Wheelers Club out of American Fork. And they were actually getting ready to go down on a President's Day trip. So I bought my Jeep in January of 99, and they are planning this President's Day trip in February of 99. And so I'm like, well, come to Moab. I'm like, what's Moab? You know, I had no idea. And so I, I showed up, and, you know, I remember that that Saturday morning we rolled into the city market, and, you know, people are there. They're doing their thing. They're airing down their tires. They're disconnecting their sway bars. I mean, all the, the rigmarole that goes with it. And I'm like – what are you guys doing? You know, do I need to do that? Yeah, I had no idea. Right. And so, so my very first trail ever, like besides just putting around in the mountains and stuff like that was golden spike. Nice. And I had no clue what I was getting into. I mean, I'd only wheeled this Jeep, you know, just a couple times on really mild trails there along the Wasatch front. And all of a sudden, you know, we're jumping on to poison spider and I'm going up the waterfall and I kill it. And I have no idea what to do because, I mean, obviously it's, you know, it's got the old 4.2 liter motor in it that's carbureted. Right. So I've got to hold the brake down. I got to push the clutch in to start it, but I got to give it gas. And uh, it was a day, Rich. I tell you what, I'm not sure how I survived. <laughs> I got, I got to the golden crack and I'm like, I'm not doing it. I'm not going through it. And they're like, you don't have a choice. <laughs> and so, um, Charlie Copsey, who I'm sure you're oh, yeah. familiar with, oh, yeah, he was on the trail that day, and and he basically was kind of my little buddy that just got me through and just kept me going. And, I mean, without him and some of the other people from the, the Lone Peak four-wheelers, I, I went to made it through. But uh, I got back to the hotel that night, and I thought, oh, my gosh, what did I just do? That was either the dumbest thing I've ever done or the best thing I've ever found in my life. Right. And the next day, we went out and ran behind the rocks, and – and I was hit, you know, the, the bug bit me. And so I started going down to Jeep Safari. And then, you know, like I said, after I finished college and everything, I ended up moving down to Moab in 2004 because Moab was the be all end all. I mean, that, that was the ultimate and off road back, you know, in that time. And, yes. and I, just, I couldn't imagine being anywhere else and loved it. So that's, that's awesome. The Charlie, was one of I think he was the first one and maybe the only one to drive the the upper waterfall mm-hmm. on yep um, the proving grounds yep exactly yep. and yep. Uh, yep unaided without without a winch I may I, I understood they had the winch line out but they never got it tight so yeah that's amazing yeah, but I remember seeing a video of that he had the old Unimog Jeep and if an interesting point about Charlie, if you remember, his old CJ7 was yellow. Right. And that's why my roll cage is yellow. Because when he was getting to rebuild his Jeep, I actually bought his old roll cage. And at that time, I had painted my Jeep green because I had replaced the tub. And so I bought his yellow roll cage, and I really liked the color combination. And so literally, that's why here, 25 late years later, my Jeep is still green with the yellow roll cage. It's going back to Charlie Copsey and buying his yellow roll cage off his old comp bug, Rob's wow. comp CJ. 
That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Small world. Yeah. And then at, I know, it's funny. at what time did you get into the um, Red Rock? Um, so I got into Red Rock right about as soon as I moved to Moab. I mean, obviously, you know, I was one of those, you know, guys that every year you'd get the Jeep Safari paper and you get so excited and you, you go through the grid, you figure out what trails you're going to do and what days and you put down the numbers. I mean, I would spend hours pouring over the, the Jeep Safari paper every year, getting ready to, to go down to Moab. And, and so when I got down to Moab, I was very excited to become a member of the club and, you know, start working with them. And so my first meeting, I think we, we got to Moab in, I think it was April, like the end of April or something. And the first meeting was, you know, the first Monday of the month there in May. And my first meeting, I went and started meeting people, started going out jeeping. And then, you know, just even a couple few months later, they had a, an, an opening for the land use officer. And the, the guy that had been doing it for a long time was kind of ready to move on, do something different. And so I started as the, the land use officer in 2004. And I still have the longest continuous period of service with the Red Rock four-wheelers. I was land use officer for 13 years Wow! and dealt with that and did all the permits, did all the dealing with the BLM and state trust lands and forest service and national park. And, you know, was, was really big into that for a long, long time. I'm surprised you have any hair left. <laughs> for real. Cause I would yeah. have pulled it out. <laughs> it, it was, it was an interesting, it was, a little bit, it was a major learning curve. And and luckily we had a lot of really good land use managers in Moab that I was able to deal with. And a lot of it was frustrating. A lot of it was difficult. I mean, one of the big things, you know, that happened as I was land use officer was switching to the, you know, the new five-year permit where we began to get exclusive use of the trails, where we were starting to, you know, where Jeep Safari was really turning from less of a, you know, spring break kind of party to more of this, you know, just epic worldwide event that was just becoming this this monster that Jeep Safari became in the, you know, early 2010s and 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 even on. And so it was it was interesting to be there and kind of experience all that growth and see the change and see what it went through and and deal with all that. And so once you were in Moab, you pretty much stayed there. And how long did you keep teaching? So um, I ended up teaching between full-time and substituting almost 10 years. Um, Moab is just a tiny little town with one elementary, one middle school, one high school. That's it. About 100 kids per grade. And so I actually ended up getting laid off at one point because we had some major funding issues. Um, you know, long story short, which I'm not very good at, but basically uh, the district financial manager died and they found that he'd been using wrong, the wrong money to pay the wrong bills. Jeez. And so they had to end up laying off 20% of the school district. And so I was one of those that ended up getting laid off. So then I substituted for a little while and then went back full-time full teaching for a, a just a little bit again before you know, I decided that, that I was ready to do something else. Awesome. Cool. And uh, what is that something else that you decided to do? Well, not live in Moab anymore. Right. <laughs> That's basically what it came down to. You know, Moab, Moab is one of those towns that it is a lot of fun. It's got just about anything you can imagine the outdoors to do, but it is very, very difficult to survive in Moab. Unless you somehow are independently wealthy or something. I mean, it's very typical. People are working two or three jobs. 
Um, most of those jobs are seasonal, which means every winter, you know, you're you're unemployed, you're dealing with, you know, trying to survive. You know, my my wife at the time, you know, she was almost always working some type of seasonal position. And so it it was it was rough to make it. And Moab has changed a lot as as you're fully aware of in the last yes. 25 years. And it's kind of just become this playground for the elite. You know, that the town doesn't really want the Jeepers there. They're trying to push out the side-by-sides. They're trying to minimize the, the motorized recreation. They want the, the tourism dollars from the, you know, the national parks. They want the rafters. They want the mountain bikers. But other than that, they're just not motorized recreation use-friendly. And I just got to the point I was tired of banging my head against the wall and, and losing every single time. And I then came out to, to Trail Hero for the first time in 2016, you know, with with your son, Little Rich. And I was just blown away. I'm, I, I'd heard of Sand Hollow before, and I tried to make it to a couple of the, the previous um, Winter on the Rocks, but never was able to make it. And so that first trip that I came out to Trail Hero, it was just like, you know, the heavens parted. And I was like, there's this whole other world that I didn't even know existed. Right. And uh so where, within where two you're years, not overly regulated. Yes. You can go out and you can have fun. You can you can still have that enjoyment that what Moab used to be back in the day. You know, you can make new trails, you can make new obstacles, you can do them, you can do them ethically, you can do them appropriately, but you can still do them legally. Right. And it, it was just this this eye-opening experience. And and like I said, you know, the it was kind of that mass exodus. There was quite a few of us that left Moab there in the you know, the late teens period, you know, of course, Stephen Ants being probably the, the most famous of all those. Right. And uh, so I finally moved over to St. George area in 2018 and now live literally right next to Sand Hollow. I mean, I can see the side of the, the dam from my driveway at Sand Hollow State, State Park and couldn't be happier. Excellent. So when you were, what was the biggest battle that you felt you had to wage with BLM to get the the Easter Jeep Safari going? So much of it was just the very idea of almost we it almost seemed like we had to every year fight the legitimacy of the event. You know, that we could justify why we're doing this and then the the damage that's being done to the trails and, and what was going on and and the argument that we always had is that Moab is a destination. It is a four-wheeling destination for people literally from all over the world. So if you don't allow us to be able to go out and to do this event, these people are still going to come. But what they're going to do then is they're going to go out and they're not going to know what they're doing. They're not going to know where they're going. They're not going to practice the tread lightly principles. And it's going to be going back to, you know, almost the Wild West days of people just driving anywhere and everywhere they want to go. Total mayhem. And so yep. our, our big push was let us go out there. Let us guide these people. Let us teach these people. Let us show them how to use the land and use it appropriately and show that there's a way to be able to recreate on public lands in a, in a safe, you know, mildly controlled environment where the damage isn't going to be done, where you're not going to have a bunch of yahoos just driving over the crypto and going wherever they want. And so that was always the big push is give us this opportunity to educate and to entertain responsibly and appropriately. Right. That's good. And one of the things that drives me nuts, and I touch on it in a lot of these conversations, um, is that Moab and the powers that be, which truly are the city council and county, 
yes. not understand, and they they don't understand that bikers, meaning mountain bikers, and or the majority of mountain bikers. I'm not going to say all mountain bikers because I don't want to be inclusive like that. But you know, most mountain bikers, most rafters, most rock climbers, um, the raw hikers, they don't spend a lot of money. Right. You know, they, they don't, for the majority of them, you know, they're, they're camping down by the river. Um, they don't, you know, they may buy gas if they have to in town, but you know, they, they don't even use city market properly. I've seen, I've seen so many people forage at city market and that's the best way I can put it is forage. And you walk through that store and you find all these empty containers of, of crackers and chips. And I saw a guy in there one time busting off the fresh mushrooms busting off the oh. stems and, and bagging only the caps. Oh my gosh. And leaving the yeah, stems. That surprised me. Yep. And it's, I'm, yeah. I just, yeah. And, and yet it's, the city council and the County still, you know, Oh my God, we got to yep. go to the non-motorized recreation. Motorized right. recreationists buy. They have purchasing Absolutely. power. Yep. Yep. And that was always kind of our joke, you know, there amongst the locals in Moab is, you know, you'd have a, a mountain biker come in for the weekend. And while he was there, he wouldn't change his underwear or his $20 bill, you know, <laughs> all he left is his TP and, and waste. <laughs> right. Exactly. But, but you're so true. I mean, if you look at the, the financial impact that the motorized events had in Moab, I mean, they were tens of millions of dollars a year. But it's almost like the city council was almost blind to that or or thought that it was just showed up by magic. It's like they, they didn't understand that, you know, it's the jeepers that we're coming into town that we're, you know, driving our trucks and our trailers or our campers or our RVs. And we're staying at the hotels. We're staying at the campgrounds. We're buying gas. We're buying food. We're, we're going out to dinner. We're buying parts as we broke, you know, and, and, and so much money came from that motorized recreation economy. And they just they just didn't care. You know, they, they wanted to be almost like another Aspen or Vail or Park City or something where, you know, come spend your money. But, you know, don't don't go out in nature. Just kind of leave the money and then go away. Right. And they don't understand that that money that is spent, like you just mentioned, is the money that stays in town. Right. You know, it's, um, you know, there people aren't coming to Moab and then buying a bicycle, you know, right. unless they destroy theirs, you know, it gets run over in the parking lot by somebody, you know, some guy backing his minivan out, you know, they're not buying a new bicycle. They're, they're not buying a raft, you know, they're, they're right. in there and they're just, they're either renting or they're, you know, they brought their own, yeah. so they don't need anything from town. Yeah. yeah. And that was the thing that I, cause I knew a lot of the people on the city council and county council. I went to those meetings quite often. I was pretty politically involved while I was there. And now the thing is, I always said, you guys need to push these off-road events because Moab needs shoulder season events. You know, we're inundated during the summer, but the thing is with off-roading, you can still do that in November over Thanksgiving weekend or even over Christmas or President's Day where none of the other outdoor activities really can you. I mean, who goes to Moab to go mountain biking in the winter or goes rafting in the winter or even go to the parks? But yeah, you can do that in the winter. I was that guys, you guys are missing this opportunity to harness in more money and make Moab a true year-round economy. But they just don't care. Yeah, and and the way they 
the way the police um, would just be on top of everybody. Uh-huh. I mean, because I, I wintered there and stayed at Danny Grimes' house for almost 90 days. And yeah. me and Shelly and had a great winter off season, you right. know, our off season. Right. And it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, never had any interaction with the police or, you know, I mean, we spent a lot of money there at all the businesses. Um, but the, it, when it's, when it's a weekend of, or a week where there's a lot of wheelers in town, the city police just seem to be like, so anti, you know, well, it's like, okay, now here's how we get our, our overtime pay. Yeah. You yeah. Know, and they were just and, on you for anything. And it seemed like the PD and the state were the worst. I, I would knew a lot of the, the deputies and I was pretty good friends with the sheriff and they were always really cool, but it seemed like, especially the state troopers, they just, yeah, they viewed Moab as their, their piggy bank in so many ways. You know, and, and it, it was sad because it's like, you know, as long as guys are, you know, obeying the laws or doing what they're supposed to be doing, you know, for the most part, most jeepers are pretty cool people. But it seemed like they always had to try to make it more than what it was, yep. you know, and then when they would bring in the, all the out of state or not out of state, but the, the um, out of district, yeah, state, yeah, out of district, you know, especially for Jeep Safari and stuff like that. I mean, it just. Yeah, it just became crazy. It was it was sad to see what it was because that's not the Moab that I knew and fell in love with. Right. So what is your name your three favorite trails in Moab? Hmm. That would be a good one. I would have to say Pritchett Canyon is just iconic. Right. I mean, in terms of just beauty and remoteness and challenge of the trail. I always love Pritchett. You know, anytime I got to run Pritchett and then I'd always, I'd always, well, not always, but usually I would go up Pritchett and then turn and go up Hunter Canyon and out through the, the end of behind the rocks. That was always one of my favorite trails. Um, next would probably be out in area BFE. One of my favorite to do, especially someone that hadn't been out to area BFE is we would, you know, go in there, drop down into the bottom of the wash, go up through the, the gatekeeper of Epler Hell Dorado turn left, go up through minor threat and up through green day. Right. That's how we, we use that when we raced out there. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You guys did that one a lot with your dirt riot and stuff. Yes. And that one was just such a great one because it was enough that even somebody in a, you know, fairly stockish rig, I mean, you could get through it on 35 if you took the right lines and stuff, but you could also go out in the full blown two buggy or, you know, even rear steer rig and just have so much fun. And so, you know, the, the, that trail out in, in BFE, I, I love that one. That was one that I did on a, a quite regular basis just because it was so much fun. And it really got an opportunity to show people what extreme wheeling is in Moab. Because what I came to learn, Moab doesn't have a lot of extreme trails. I thought they did when I first moved there. I thought, this place is amazing. Nobody could ever do anything more difficult. And then as I got there, you know, and you kind of, you know, you only run Poison Spider or Cliffhanger or, you know, stuff like that so many times. and so BFE was so was so instrumental and influential because that opportunity to go out and do the hardcore stuff. And, you know, we had a real good relationship with the, you know, all the owners originally. And, you know, the, the, the little club that I was in, the Moab Friends for Wheeling, ended up actually building and maintaining a lot of those trails out in area BFE. And, and it was just such a, a fun little unique area to be able to go out there and really push yourself. 
Right. Um, so I'd say that would probably be number two. And then even though it's kind of cliche, you, you can't go to Moab and not run Hell's Revenge. You know, you you just have to go out and do it. And, and I mean, yeah, you can run Hell's Revenge in 45 minutes if you got the right rig, you know, and go out there and just zip through everything. But it was just so neat to be able to take people, especially people that had never really been wheeling or never been that kind of wheeling. And you go up that first chicken fin and you just see their faces, you know, and then you drop down there by the abyss and you're heading out towards, you know, Hell's Gate at the end. You go out to the overlook and then even, you know, you got a good group of rigs. You go and you run the, you know, the named obstacles, you know, you go and you run, you know, Hell's Gate and you go and you run Mickey's Hot Tub. You go and you run the escalator and, you know, all that type of thing. And when somebody who's not been really wheeling when they get done with hell's revenge that first time they will never ever ever forget that day true very true okay one of my favorite trails out there is the rim but yes i really don't ever want to do it at night <laughs> yep i Lower never feel i never we- feel like i'm gonna roll roll over out there even though every, so many people do um mm-hmm. but it's just the 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 vistas are just incredible yes yeah there, there's nothing like i i loved we would go up we would do a night run and we'd get up to the rim you know and then watch the sunset and then turn around and come back down at night but it, it took me a little while i kind of have a love hate relationship with the rim there for a bit because when i first moved up to moab my jeep wasn't that built and so i didn't have very good gearing and i didn't have very good brakes so going all the way down there, I'm riding my brakes the whole way, you know, having to put it in neutral to be able to get myself to stop because I was pushing through my brakes. Right. <laughs> and it took me a long time before, you know what? I decided I'm going to learn this trail and I'm going to get comfortable up it, down it, backwards, sideways, any way you want. And I mean, I got to the point that, I mean, I could spot somebody up the Moab rim from the my phone in my living room, you know? <laughs> okay. As you come up, here's where you're going to put your tire. You're going to come around this little rock. You know, and yeah, the the beauty and the the majesty of of getting out on the Moab Rim is just just amazing. Great trail. Yeah, the last time we that you and I wheeled together was on Moab Rim, and that was uh, during yeah. Christine Sullivan's um, run. Yep. And yep. we got to the top, and I had a, my locker, the seal in my lock, air locker had gone out, so I turned around uh-huh. and came back down. I'd called Steve Nance and said, okay, you know, do you have an open bay? And he goes, yeah, you know, we just opened. So yeah, I've got an open bay, but you know, it's first come first serve rich. So we were up there at the observation point and I turned around and drove down and I was standing there at Steve's in like 10 minutes. Yeah. And people were coming up and just get bailing out of my way because I came flying down the trail because I didn't want (laughs) to be there. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to sit and wait for my rig. I wanted to get it done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, you could get up to the top of Moab Rim and back down in an hour. Yeah. You know, and so it was a fun one, no doubt. Absolutely. So then you guys made the move to to St. George Hurricane. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And what was, what was that like? Um, for you personally to get out of a community that you had, uh, that you'd pretty, you know, you were very well established. Um, was yeah. it easy to, to do the same thing over in hurricane? Not, not in the same way. Moab. I really, 
I, I think, you know, for lack of sounding kind of maybe cliche, I really came into my own in Moab. You know, I, I became very, very heavily involved in the social media side. I ran all the social media stuff for the Red Rock Boilers, their Facebook page and stuff for their website. You know, in a lot of ways, I kind of became that that face of the Red Rock Four Wheelers because anytime anybody would post up online or something, it was usually me that they were dealing with. You know, and then I, I did a blog for a while called Moab Dave, you know, where I wrote on on the, you know, my page about, you know, the adventures of a handicapped jeeper living in Moab. You know, and what it was like and what I went through and what I experienced and, you know, some of the highs and lows of being there. And I met so many amazing people. I mean, I've been on, you know, different TV shows, different commercials, different advertising, you know, from, you know, everything from BF Goodrich to Jeep to Warren to Quadratech. And because I, I had these opportunities to meet these people and, and interact with these just fantastic industry reps. And, and so leaving all that was hard. But Moab wasn't the place that it used to be. It, it was losing a lot of the fun. It was kind of kind of getting a little bit toxic, especially for me. I, I had a my own set of issues with the Red Rock four wheelers and ended up actually separating myself from them. Um, because I just I disagreed with some of the decisions they were making and, and the way that they're moving forward with the event. It wasn't something I felt like I could support anymore. Right. Didn't want so your name was, on it. Yeah. Yeah. And that was hard because for so long, Jeep Safari and the Red Rock Four Wheelers was almost kind of who I identified myself as. You know, I was working hours and hours every day, you know, promoting the event, promoting, you know, the, the, the social media pages, you know, trying to get people out there and to show them what it was. And and to have that separation, that, that was hard. Because that really had to change kind of all little bit of who I am. I, you know, I was I was Moab Dave. I mean, if you said Moab Dave, people knew me. Um, right. And so, so coming out here to the hurricane and living out here in you know Southwest Utah now, it it's been different because I mean, I I still will be out and obviously my Jeep still that same green and yellow it's been for 25 years. People be like, oh, you guided me on my first trail back in you know 2004. Do you remember me? No, but sure. <laughs> you know? And so you, you really, I just became ingrained in a lot of people's memories because obviously my Jeep is big and bright. And so it's obvious there's not a lot of disabled Jeepers out there, you know? And, and so it, it was, it was a fun experience, but it, it just got to the point that I just couldn't stay in mob any longer because I, it just was no longer fun. Right. Okay. I get it. I, I yeah. absolutely understand that I've moved from areas for the same reason. Um, mm -hmm. When I, in the '90s, I lived in Cedar City, and right. it was fun for three and a half years. And then it be when it well, it was fun for three years, and then and then it started to taper off. It became a lot of hard work for me because I was trying to keep. I went out there for a job, and the job only lasted about six six months because the guy that I went to work for had and moved and made the commitment for sold the business and then their same kind of thing, you know, they, their, their whole, um, their way of doing things, um, what their end goals were, were not the same. And, yeah. you know, this, basically what it was is some guy was, had bought the business so that he could get his sons involved in something because all his sons uh, ever wanted gotcha. to do was golf. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was two tire stores that was one in Cedar City and one down in St. George. And at the time, I was managing both of them. And the guy that hired me, you know, he wanted 11. You know, we we had already designated that we were going to build 11 stores. And before Mm -hmm. we could build any others, he wanted to, you know, get these two stores running right. And so I came in to do that. And then he sold the business once it got those two stores right. And it, um, it really, it made a big difference. And then it became a struggle. Um, and then we went back to California and I started CalRock. So it all worked out really good right. for me, yeah, yeah. you know, and I think it was good for my kids, but you know, it was, uh, it's hard to stay someplace when it's no longer fun, when it becomes, you know, toxic or, um, it becomes, uh, it just becomes too much work to, to try to just get through each day. Right. Right. Exactly. And that's where in so many ways, you know, that kind of light going on in my head with trail hero and what sand hollow had to offer. It was like, this is where I need to be, you know, and, and the experience of coming out here. And I mean, the, the amazing people that we have here in, in this, you know, Southwest Utah area. I mean, I live in Dixie Springs, which like I said, is literally right adjacent to sand hollow state park. And I know of at least off the top of my head, six rear steer buggies just in my neighborhood. Right. <laughs> you know? And it's like, how many places in the world can you go and, you know, have these amazing people and these amazing drivers? And, you know, my my uh, living girlfriend now, you know, my better half, Sarah, you know, she's gotten into jeeping since she's been out here. She grew up kind of doing a little bit of mudding in the Midwest, but had never experienced anything like this. And, you know, and, and she, I always tell her she's getting basically a graduate degree in off-roading because <laughs> on any given Saturday, she can go out and get spotted by, you know, your son, Little Rich, or by Dave Wong, or by, you know, Mike Brassanini, or by, you know, any of these Randall Davis, you know, these people that have, you know, got these iconic names in the industry. And, They'll go out and they'll, they'll take you out. You'll go run Milt's Mile or Double Sammy or, you know, whatever. And, and to be able to to be in, so ingrained in this community that it's just been such an amazing place because of what now Sand Hollow is becoming. Right. And Sand Hollow now, I think, is even better than the fun that Moab was 20 years ago. And I, I don't see that changing for, for quite a while, if ever. And hopefully it won't. Right. And, and it, it'll all come down to how... You know, BLM deals with that open area. Yes. And that's going to be huge. And that's one thing that, you know, I oftentimes had conversation with the BLM in Moab about how do we reduce use? Well, the way that you reduce damage is you don't minimize the number of trails. You expand the number of trails. You don't limit it to, you know, 100 people per vehicle or 100 people for a trail per day. What you do is you add more trails, you add more mileage. That's how you mitigate the damage. And and I remember having that conversation with the people down at the BLM in Moab. Let's make the sand flats open across country travel. Right. You know, let let people go out there and have fun. And like, oh, no, it'd be it'd be a, a desert lands or it'd be a warscape out here. There wouldn't be a tree or a bush or alive. And it's like, but look at Sand Hollow. There's, you know, 66,000 acres where you can literally drive anywhere you want. There's bushes. There's not a lot of trees because it's a desert, but there's trees out there. There's scrub brush. There's there's cryptobiotic soil out there. Even though people can and legally are allowed to drive anywhere they want, it shows that an open across country travel management area 
can work on a large scale. And I wish more places understood that it really is a feasible land use management option. Open across country does work. Yeah, I mean, it, another perfect example of that is Johnson Valley. Yes. You know, except for the desert floor where, you know, people are going to, you know, maybe spread out a bit, you know, when to stay out of the other person's dust that they're driving with. You know, they're still those hillsides, those, uh, you know, the, the main opportunity areas, they're just canyons, you know. Yeah. And uh, they're going to change anyway when the rain happens. Right. And that's when, right. when they closed off the grand staircase um, because of our friends at the, you know, Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance or whatever, SUA, you know, they yeah. they were fighting BLM and as a club president at the time of the Color Country four-wheel drive in Cedar City, I started a group that was called the Tri-State Off-Highway Vehicle Association. It was a bunch of clubs and we ended up with mountain bikers and motorcycle riders and and ATVers and and horse people because um, we knew that, you know, we were going to lose the staircase if the roadless initiatives went through, the plans. And they right. did because Sua threw more yep. money at it and I moved. And when I moved, they had one meeting, I guess, after I moved. And then yeah. that was it. And it was like, and yep. then that, that, that group went away. And it was a shame because we had, God, we were getting... 150 people at a meeting, you know, once, oh, wow. once, a, basically once a week. Cause that was yeah. during the time where they were, you know, going through that, their, their plan. And, uh, you know, unfortunately we lost that, but, uh, it's a shame. So yep. let's, uh, let's talk about some of those, those television shows and the opportunities you've had. Um, I know that you were on, on the um, truck night in America, and uh-huh. uh, what was uh, what was that like? Truck night in America was interesting because I had heard of it the first season, but I hadn't watched any of the episodes. And then I, I met a guy, um, Kobe, um, when I was out in Moab, and they just finished episode or season one. And so actually we were out there with, with little Ridge doing a a trail ride out there. And I ended up riding with Hobie for the day and just had a great, fantastic day talking with him. And I knew they were getting ready to do season two, but didn't really know much about it because, you know, the advertisers I saw for season one, I mean, they're, they're shooting paint cans and they're pushing silos over. And I'm like, Oh my goodness, this is so cheesy. Well, I ended up a couple months after I moved out here, getting a call from Hobie and said, hey, you know, what would you think about being on Truck Night Season 2? And I, my first response is, are you kidding me? There's no way I want to destroy my vehicle, you know, right. because so many of them, I mean, they're jumping, they're acting like the Dukes of Hazard out there. They're slamming into people. And so my initial reaction was, no, I had no interest. And then I got thinking about it. I'm like, you know, I've had my Jeep for a long time. I know pretty well what it can and can't do if i do this i can do it right i can do it responsibly without destroying my vehicle and so i I finally responded back to hobie and said yeah i'd like to be in consideration and so you know i went through the the entire process and there were six thousand applicants and 60 of us were chosen to be on season two wow and so it ended up being a really 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 neat experience um, you know, they shipped my Jeep out there and and uh, flew me and a friend out for the 
the week and you know they did the the shooting over three days and it was the first time i'd really done anything tv production wise i mean i'd been involved in some commercials and some you know other commercial type stuff but seeing an actual tv show and what went into that was, was a really neat experience you know and getting to meet the people and and i always say my biggest takeaway from truck night america is the people that i met you know, getting to meet people like, you know, Glenn Plake and, and Bender and Abe Wine and and then, of course, Pete Soren, who was my coach. Right. And, you know, that that memory that I have of Pete and he and I working together, getting through that. And then, unfortunately, with his passing, you know, that that winter, you know, that that opportunity that I had to meet him and interact with him was, you know, those are memories that I'll, I'll cherish for the rest of my life. And it, it was just such an incredible experience. And. And I remember I, I knew when I went out there, I, I watched all of season one at that time, which, like I said, they, they, they needed some refining. And season two did get much better. But my two goals were to not be eliminated in the first challenge because nobody ever knows that guy's name. <laughs> and the second was to not quit unless they actually make me stop. Okay. And so those are my goals. I didn't care if I won because... $10,000 isn't going to change anybody's life. I mean, they make it think like this, oh, huge amount of money. And, you know, it's not. No. You know, you could go through $10,000 and almost on a set of tires these days. Um, but I, I was able to go out and I was able to compete and I was able to go out and I think show people that just because I'm disabled, just because, you know, I, I can't walk 10 feet doesn't mean I can't drive up this 10-foot waterfall. And and so that aspect was was really neat. I had a lot of fun and uh, it ended up being a, a really very positive experience. And I'm very, very glad I did it. Yeah. And the second year, if I remember right, you know, like you were talking about the first year, you know, shooting the 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 paint cans and the and, you know, pushing over the silo and doing some of the things that they were doing. They were kind of, you know, it was kind of hokey. And yes, the second season was more wheeling yes yeah they, they got a new course designer you know a guy little you may rich. know named little, <laughs> little rich yeah and he brought a lot of legitimacy to it because the, the it's funny because i was talking to a couple of the people after the event because i didn't know that little rich was doing the courses when i originally applied for season two um and ended up finding that out later after i got accepted mm -hmm. But the actual producers of the TV show is a lady, an older lady that lives in New York that has never had a driver's license, <laughs> you know, and she's the one trying to do this off-road show and just showed that they had no idea what they were doing. <laughs> and so it was, it was interesting, you know, going back to even watching season one versus season two and seeing how it became more like legit wheeling, you know, like some of the, the challenges we ended up doing, you know, the probably the most famous one was the creek climb was one that I ended up doing. And to me, I'm like, this is just Moab. I mean, this is just like going up through Mickey's hot tub. You know, I just get into it, roll on up, get a little momentum and, you know, and away I go. And and so it was fun seeing that the more real type of wheeling it got in season two. And I was really looking forward to it progressing. And then, you know, of course, like I think it was so many things, money is what killed it and they needed more money and the History Channel only wanted to give them this. And then, with Pete's passing and then it was really unfortunate that it, it didn't continue on because I think it just would have continued to have gotten better and, and draw more people into the idea of what off-roading really is. Right. Yeah. I, I actually applied, um, for one of the host jobs 
And oh, did you? Didn't realize, you know, I did. I had no idea who else was was doing it. Um, they approached me and said, "Hey, you want to do this?" And then after that, um, you know, I started finding out who else it had applied, and then found that the the four guys that they did pick, it was like, okay, I see what they were looking for. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't, I, I'm not that type of personality where I'm kind of over the top. Um, yeah. Where, you know, Glenn, um, yeah, definitely. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. Abe, you know, same thing. Pistol Pete. Um, you know, when, when you can look at that, a group like that and say, you know, Bender is, you know, is probably the sanest of that group. You know, you're saying something. <laughs> right. Yeah. Anytime Bender has to be the, you know, the voice of reason that that's always scary. <laughs> sorry, 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 Bender, but you know, you know, it's right. true. We love you, Rob. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's so true. And, and meeting those guys. And I mean, it's, it's just, it was such an awesome experience. Then even my fellow competitors, you know, I mean, you know, those that have seen the, the episode, I mean, on the very first course, I ended up jumping my Jeep and it was my own stupid fault. I didn't have my harnesses tightened appropriately. And so when my Jeep landed, my harnesses actually came down off my shoulder and I literally bent my steering wheel with my face. Wow. Um, people don't realize they think that happened after I hit Sue, the other competitor. And that's not what happened. That's the reason I hit Sue, the other competitor is because I literally bounced my face off my steering wheel, cut my nose and I remember looking up and seeing Sue in front of me. And I remember looking down at the brake pedal and thinking, I need to push that. <laughs> and it was just that half a second that it just knocked me for enough of a loop that I ended up running into to Sue. And I mean, gratefully, it didn't cause, you know, much damage to either vehicle. Oh, my God, a little bit of cosmetic damage. But yeah, because that's never happened before. <laughs> right. But yeah, I definitely learned you can you can you can bend your steering wheel with your face and you know, and, and literally ran into this lady who I, I mean, I'd seen at breakfast that morning and that was it. And, and now she and I are good friends. I've been out wheeling the Rubicon with her and her husband and two boys. And she's coming out here to trail hero this year. And, and, you know, the, the people and the opportunity they had to meet and even some of the other competitors from the various different, both season one or season two, you know, we've got a little Facebook group and we all kept in touch for a while. And, a lot of them have come out to trail here. A couple of them came out to Moab while I was still there. And and that experience was absolutely worth it for the people um, that I met and I still have involved in my life. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. After that, after I, I you know, when the show got, when they were getting ready to, to, to try to find people to go on the show, I started getting calls from one of the talent search people and they were going, okay, this is what I'm looking for. I am looking for a person that is of this demographic. And, you know, it was age, sex, nationality. Um, you know, they, they really wanted to be inclusive. Um, right. And so I ended up giving them a long list of names. And I'm, I was absolutely amazed at how many ended up on the show um, from, you know, I, I gave them, you know, I probably gave them 20 names. 25 names over the, for, over those two years for those mm -hmm. two seasons. And I think that probably at least 10 or 12 of them got on there. Oh, that's awesome. You know, and I'm not going to say who and what the people were look, what, what the, the, 
the scouts were looking for. But um, but if you see that diversity of, yes. of the people out there, you know, it, it wasn't that typical 18 to 35 white guy. Right, you know, right. And, and that's so, what I thought with me was, was I mean, they, they did. They, you know, brought out some amazing people. I mean, yeah, there were a couple grandmas that they brought out and these mud truck racers and these, you know, stuff like that. And it, it really was a, it's a good mix. You know, we, we really had a lot of fun. It was an opportunity to have people that you never would have met otherwise. It never would have been in the same room otherwise if it hadn't been for that commonality of, you know, the off-roading and enjoying that, that, that aspect. Right. So living in, in Southern Utah now, um, or Western Southern Utah, that St. George hurricane area, are you, are you working at this time? Um, have you retired from teaching completely or what do you, what's your, what's your day-to-day thing? So long answer, I guess, short would be I'm not currently working. Um, I do uh, quite a bit of volunteering with some of the different local organizations and stuff out here. You know, most importantly for me is a, a group that we have called Hero for a Day. Okay. And it actually is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that was started kind of piggybacking with Trail Hero and now has become our own entity. And I'm the vice president of that organization, and our focus is to provide motorized recreation for special needs individuals and veterans. And so it's been a really, really rewarding opportunity. Obviously, that's something near and dear to my heart because with my disability, my Jeep is literally my replacement for my legs. Right. And so we've been able to have some really amazing chances where we've been able to take out special needs individuals as well as veterans show them what we do, show them the outdoors, give them the opportunity to go out and have fun. And and it's been a, a really, really neat thing to be able to do. Like one of our big events we just did earlier this month was we do a big 4th of July barbecue where we take out a lot of our local veterans up on an area called the West Rim. And the West Rim, you can overlook the entire St. George Valley. And so we go out there and we take the veterans who then can watch the fireworks but they're far enough away they don't feel the concussions or or um, hear the detonations. And so, it, therefore, you're not triggering into that PTSD and stuff like that. And I think this year we had like 120 people up there. We all, you know, we cooked bar, barbecued burgers and hot dogs and just had a fantastic time up there just enjoying our, our veterans and showing our appreciation to them. That's um, awesome. We. We've actually been real blessed that the BLM has been very supportive of us. And we have a, a trail that was formed about four or five years ago called The Fallen. And it's got nine major obstacles on it. And each one of those obstacles is dedicated to the fallen soldiers from the 20th century. You know, starting with World War One, World War Two, Korea. And as you progress through the trail, the trail gets a little bit more difficult until you get to, you know, the, the final obstacle, which is a, a pretty gnarly nine rated big V crack. And then at the very end of that, we've been able to get a 99-year lease from the BLM on an area that we've called the Drill Grounds that is a war veterans memorial. Oh, nice. And we actually put we put a flagpole up there that's got a solar light on it. We actually have a, a little memorial area where we have a bench, um, and each bench is dedicated to one of the branches of the, the fallen members of, you know, Air Force, Army, Navy, Coast Guard, Marines. Um the the natural rock is kind of a, a very, I don't know how to put it, but it's got like little notches and niches and stuff in it. And so a lot of people put little mementos in there of, you know, veterans they've known who have passed away or or family members or things like that. And 
So we actually have that as a 99-year lease from the BLM, and it's the only dedicated war or veterans memorial or any type of memorial like that, as far as I know, in southern Utah out on BLM property. That's awesome. I didn't know that that's that that, that there was a 99-year lease and that it was uh, set up as a memorial like that. I knew that that's I – I knew about it, but I didn't know that much. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been really cool. We've had a lot of really good volunteers have actually gone in and carved a set of stairs out of the natural sandstone. Um, and then we actually have a handrail there. So people even with mobility issues and, you know, things like that can still be able to get up there, be able to access the, the main part of the drill grounds. And and it really is a solemn area. I mean, you go up there and it's just kind of a little natural bowl. It's got a big old huge rock wall on one side. They're actually getting ready to be mounting a um, a big old metal flag that uh, that we got from Laser Nut, Cody made for us. We're gonna be mounting that up here with a couple solar lights, and and it just it's a it's a solemn feeling, you know. And it's really neat to be able to have this, especially if you go up and you run the fallen, to then get up there and have this memorial ground that's been dedicated. It it really is a neat thing. And so I'm I'm doing some things like that. I'm helping out with some of the other local, you know, events. Of course, I help with Trail Hero and Winter Jamboree and and things like that. But right now I'm not working full time. Um, I am in the process of getting a handicapped van be built for me, which will then allow me to be able to start going out and doing things on my own again. And when that happens, I probably will continue doing some more volunteering and, you know, some working with some of the local charity organizations in the area is my goal. Okay. Let's, uh, let's talk about, about your Jeep and especially the, the mobility issues that you have been able to overcome with, with, uh, I would imagine from help uh, with outside sources. Um, you know, talk about that some. So when I got my Jeep, I was young and stupid. And when I would break it, I couldn't afford to fix it. And so I had to learn very quickly how to try to fix what I could when I could, because, you know, I, I was a cheap college kid. I was just trying to survive. And so, I became a very, very poor shade tree mechanic. And, you know, I, I know just about enough to get me in trouble, but not really accomplish a whole lot. But as I've gotten older, my disability has progressed. Even though I have some of the knowledge, my body just can't do it anymore. Right. You know, my, my fingers have a hard time holding the tools or holding the wrench or holding the, you know, the things like that. I, I can't stand now for more than about a minute at a time. Um, and so I re- re- as a result of that, I've had a lot of really good friends who have helped up and, and who have helped me keep my Jeep going, who have, you know, put in countless, countless hours to, you know, keeping me in my rig. And, you know, Steve Nance, when I was in Moab, I mean, he was huge. He, he sponsored me for several years by giving me some free labor and helping me to keep my Jeep up and going because he realized how important it was for me to be able to, to get out and do it both you know, for my mental aspect, my physical aspect, my everything. I mean, it, it literally is therapeutic when I get out and get to go on the trail. Right. And that's and, Steve uh, Nance from Sand Hollow Off-Road. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When he was out in Moab, under Moab 4 by 4 Outpost. Right. And now, of course, he's out here with Sand Hollow um, Off-Road. Absolutely. And just a fantastic guy. I mean, not just, if you know Steve, none of that story surprises you i mean i can tell stories all day about steve nance and some of the amazing things that he's done for me and just an awesome awesome guy he's the epitome of the people that we need in this industry because he's just that guy right 
And then um, there's a lift that you guys did to get in in and out of the the Jeep. Yep. And so there there's a local company here called Cargo Glide out of St. George. And when I was getting ready to go on Truck Night America, they were trying to figure out what would be the best way to get me in and out of my Jeep. Because at that point, I couldn't get in it by myself. I would have to use like kind of a, a step stool and kind of step up on one step and then step up on another step and then get my Jeep, my foot up in my Jeep. And it was it was sketchy. You know, not going to lie, there's a couple of times I didn't make it. Okay. And uh, so I had this local company that said, hey, you know, we've got this. Basically, it's a roof rack system. And we think we can apply it to your Jeep. So what they ended up doing is they took my two front seats and they put it on this rail system. And they end up having to widen my my driver's side door. So that way the back of the seat will slide out. And my entire whole seat mechanism, both driver, passenger seat, center console, everything, will slide out my Jeep and then tip down at a 45-degree angle with an electric winch. So I can stand up from my scooter sit down on the edge of the seat, push the button, the winch will suck my Jeep back in and then slide me back into my Jeep and I'm in my Jeep and I'm ready to go. That's awesome. You know, that was 100% donated to me just because, you know, some friends and some some businesses wanted to, to be able to see me still go and go wheeling. And so that was a, a very humbling thing to have that donated to me. And And I've had several different experiences like that where people – different companies or different individuals have, have stepped up and have helped me out with some things just because they're good people, you know, and, and I've been very blessed because of that. Excellent. So cool. So the transition of your Jeep, it started mm-hmm. off with the carbureted 4.2, like you said. Yep. Yep. Let's go through the process or or the, the steps, some of the steps you've made to get the Jeep the way it is now, because it is no longer a stock Jeep. No, no, it's, there's not a whole lot of stock left. And people always say, well, what year is your Jeep? And my always answer is, well, what part, (laughs) you know, because when I I bought it in 1999 as a mostly stock little CJ seven, and there's not a lot of 1984 and there's not a lot of CJ seven left to it, you know? And, and a lot of that is because I started building it and I started using it and I started abusing it and, you know, I rolled my Jeep for the first time three months after I bought it. And so within the first year of owning my Jeep, I was getting ready to put a new tub on it because I, you know, I, I jacked up the original tub and the original roll cage. And, you know, at that time, Charlie Copsey did a lot of the work on my Jeep back then. Um, I had a, a girlfriend who was driving it and ended up getting uh, T-boned and broke my frame. And so I was talking to Charlie about what to do. And he said, well, we could always put another CJ7 frame in it. Or if you want, we could put a YJ frame in it, which is going to be stronger. Or I just barely put a TJ frame under my CJ7, and that'll give you coil springs. And I said, yes, let's do that. And this would have been in like late 2000, maybe early 2001. And I mean, mine was one of the, I would say, besides Charlie, probably one of the very first CJ7s out there on coil springs. You know, I mean, this was before the Warren coil spring conversion. This was before, you know, any of that type of stuff, because Charlie was able to find this TJ frame. I mean, TJs had only been out for a couple of years at that time. And he put that TJ frame under it. And I was running a, a Terraflex short arm four inch coil spring kit on my CJ. Yeah, you know? that was, and that that's definitely progressive back then. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I still have most of that TJ frame left. It's been stretched, it's been modified, and it's been back half and stuff like that. But I still have a lot of that same TJ frame that Charlie put in, you know, 22 years ago or something like that. And, you know, of course, did the V8. I ran a, a, a AMC 360 with the Turbo 400 and, you know, a Dana 300 for years and years and years, you know, and then... The 360 started getting tired, so I ended up swapping to a, you know, a 5.7 Vortec and put in a 700R4. Because in Moab, I was still driving my Jeep to the trails. You know, I, I wouldn't trailer when I was in Moab. I'd drive all the way out to the Pickle, or I would drive all the way down to BFE. So I wanted that overdrive. So I put the 700R4 in, you know, eventually switched to an Atlas, you know, did one-ton conversion, you know, help with, you know, some friends, you know, some good friends like Jeff Stevens in Moab. and and some people like that and just built it and built it and built it. And I'm to the point now, I mean, I'm on, I'd really have to think about it. Probably my fifth motor, probably my seventh transmission, third transfer case, second frame, fifth body, fourth <laughs> roll cage, you know, I mean, it never stops. on and on and on. <laughs> right. Right. And, and it's just, it, it is what it is. It's kind of that iconic Jeep that I've thought about, you know, do I just, do I just two buggy it? Do I just give up the ghost and just, you know, cut all the body panels off? Because, I mean, it's basically a two buggy underneath, you know, with all the, the running gear and stuff. But I just like the idea of having a Jeep. Right. You know, granted, it's not much of a CJ7 besides just kind of the, the body panels and the front clip. But it still looks like a Jeep. Anybody's going to see that and think, yep, that's a Jeep. And and I've always loved that look of the CJ, you know, the CJ grill, the rounded hood. I just think to me that's one of the best looking Jeeps they ever made. Absolutely. And and so for now I, I keep the old girl and you know, she's she's cantankerous and she breaks down and she has issues and she always needs something. But that's what old Jeeps are, and that's why we love and that's why we do it. True enough. So let's talk about your grill addiction. <laughs> okay and we're not talking barbecues <laughs> right right although i do enjoy good barbecue don't get me wrong right true so how did you uh how did you start getting into collecting jeep grills honestly it was kind of funny i was driving home from a friend's house in moab i was coming down spanish valley drive in moab and i just happened to see an old willie's pickup in somebody's backyard and I had just bought a Willys pickup not too long before that. I bought a, a 1951 Willys pickup in 2010 or 11. And so this would have been probably about 2013 or so. Um, and there's not a lot of Willys pickups in Moab. I mean, there's there are not a lot of Willys pickups anywhere. And so I saw this. So I kind of pulled in and I got thinking, oh, I wonder if they had any parts or anything. or just want to kind of check it out. And I ended up seeing literally over against this this brick excuse me this rock wall this old Jeep grill leaning up against there. I didn't really know what it was. It kind of looked like a Willie's pickup grill, but it was just a little bit different than mine. But it was kind of this old rusted red. It had some of the the chrome um, horizontal bars on it, and I was like, that's really neat. And so literally knocked on the door of the trailer park and said, hey, you know, I was interested in this Willie's pickup you guys have out here. And I saw a couple of parts. Well, they ended up, they were just renting. So they gave me the number of the guy that owned the property. 
And so I ended up calling him and talking to him. And, you know, I went out and looked. He had a couple of Willie's pickups, an old Willie's wagon and, you know, some stuff that had been used back in the mining days, back in back in the 50s and 60s. So that was the first grill I actually bought from him. I think I bought it for like $75. And uh, I thought, you know, it'd be cool to get some of the old cheap grills. You know, I, I always was a fan of the old Willie's, of course. And so I thought, you know, get maybe a couple flat fender grills. I'm really you know, maybe a couple CJ grills, you know, some stuff like that. And so I started collecting them and I started looking around and I got one and I got another and then I got another. And pretty soon I had about a half a dozen. I thought, you know what, I'm I'm pretty cool now. I've got just about every one of the major Jeeps, you know, because I had, you know, a Commando and I had a CJ7 and I had a, a CJ2A and a 3A and I had a CJ5 and I had a couple Willie's pickup grills and but, you know, we need to have those, maybe a couple of the Wranglers if I come across them. And then it just kind of kept going. And then I found more. And then I found more. And then I was able to actually find some really, really rare pieces. I mean, um, one of my, my most unique pieces I actually have is the 1941 slat grill um, that was made when uh, Willie's was making the, the very early um, Willie's MB. And uh, somebody posted a picture on one of the Facebook pages that I was on. And says, hey, if anybody's interested, I know the guy that owns this. And I messaged him and said, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested. Could you give me his number? Well, he kind of hemmed and hawed, and I kind of stayed with him. Finally, a month later, I get this phone number. Literally, this random guy I've never met, have no idea anything about him, lives in Delaware. And I call up this guy, and I said, hey, I know this is weird. But here's a story. You know, I, I heard that you have this old Jeep grill. I've got a Jeep grill collection. I'm trying to, you know, collect. I ended up talking to this guy for almost an hour and a half. I mean, was just such a cool guy. He'd been a Jeeper back in the day. It was an old farm guy in Delaware. He's got this old um, dairy ranch back there. And he said back in the, the early 90s, he was at a farm auction and bought a pallet of just random parts. Didn't even know what it was. Got it for like 100 bucks or something like that. And there on the very bottom of this pallet was this slat grill. And he, he knew it was a Jeep grill, but didn't really know much about it. And so anyway, ended up being able to buy that from him and had some friends that were coming out to Jeep Safari from Virginia that were able to pick it up and bring it out to me. And it just it's been such a unique experience because I've been able to literally meet and buy grills from people all across the country. I've had so many of them that were delivered to me by by good friends. You know, somebody, a good friend out of Michigan that brought me a couple or somebody from that literally drove up from um, Florida a couple years ago that brought me one or out of California or Washington. And I now would say definitively, I have the most complete Willys and Jeep grill collection of anybody in the world. I have everything from the slat grill all the way, every single model of Willys and Jeep up to 2005, plus all the modern Wranglers. That's um, awesome. Eventually, I'll get, you know, the more modern stuff, but I have a hard time justifying spending a couple hundred dollars on a, you know, a Jeep Liberty grill, you know. So <laughs> eventually, I'll get them all up. But right now, I think my collection is up to 57 pieces. Like I said, every single one a different grill. And uh, they're all going up in my garage. And uh, when my garage is done, eventually my goal is to have it all like a little Jeep museum with my grill collection. And I also have about um, 20 tailgates from the various different Jeep trucks. 
But I've, I have ended up being really blessed in this because I have Jeep grills that most Jeep aficionados have never even heard of, let alone seen. Nice. You know, one, one that I have is called a CJV35U. And it actually was a prototype that there were only a thousand of them made in 1951 because at that time the U.S. had just gotten involved in Korea and the Marines were looking for a forward vehicle that could actually ford water. And they needed a vehicle that could go through water up to a foot over the wind or over the hood. And so they came out with the CJ 35V or CJ CJV 35U, the U standing for underwater. Because you actually had a button that you could flip on the dashboard, and it would overpressurize the transmission, the transfer case, and the um, uh, motor in order to keep water out of them. Huh. And uh, so this was a guy that he posted up that he had a gorilla tailgate in the tub for one. And again, like I said, there were only a thousand of these made back in 1951, and I only know of three complete that still exist of the CJV35U. And it took me almost two years of messaging him back and forth before he finally decided to part with that grill and tailgate. And uh, funny enough, I actually had one of my good friends, Jake White. He was out at a, the uh, off-road convention out in Tennessee and was able to meet up with the guy and pick it up for me because the guy wasn't willing to ship him. And uh, ended up, that kind of got passed down to a couple friends before eventually it made its way out here and is now hanging up on my wall. So. That's awesome. it's, it's been a lot of fun. You know, I've, another one that I, I really, really like is I had a guy in 2018 that posted up on one of the early Jeep grill groups that I've got that he has this World War II Jeep grill. Well, of course, it's immediately going to catch my attention. Well, the more I did a little bit of research into it, we started talking. He actually was in the Ukraine and he and a couple of business partners are World War II salvagers. And they had, in May of 2018, found this Jeep that had been destroyed outside the Russian city of Korkov. And by doing some research, I found that that was a battle that was happening when the Russians were basically surrounded the Fifth Army in Stalingrad and the Germans were trying to break in to free their their troops. This is one of the battles that happened in February of 1943. And this Jeep was destroyed and literally buried in the Ukrainian soil for almost 80 years. And uh, so the guy was able to dig it out of the ground. It was the only salvageable part of the Jeep. But, I mean, it's it's rusted. It's dinged and it's dented. I mean, you can you can tell it's seen some stuff. And I did some research to make sure that it was legal for me to be able to import it. And uh, lo and behold, I did. And so by June of 2018, that grill was back here in my my living room. So I always say that that's my my MIA who went off to war, you know, driven by America or built by Americans, driven into combat by Soviets, destroyed by Nazis, spent 80 years in the Russian soil. And I repatriated, brought it home. And now it has a place of honor hanging up in my kitchen. Wow, that's awesome. That's a so great story. It, it, I, and I just had so many like that of things that shouldn't have worked, that shouldn't have happened. And either a, a friend or a friend found out about a grill or heard about this tailgate or heard about this, you know, whatever. And, and it's it's been fun. And I I love going out to my garage and looking at these and I don't repair them. I don't fix them. I literally wash them with soap and water and I hang them on the wall because they all have their story to tell. 
whether they're dinged and dented or broken or missing a headlight or missing a slat or, you know, something like that. It's what they've been through. It's the life that they've experienced. I have, I think nine of them are military, you know, all the way back from World War II, all the way up to I have a M151 MUT, you know, from the Vietnam era. And it just, I would love to sit down and have them all tell me what they saw, who owned them, what they experienced, what they did. But by having this collection, I try to make that live on. I try to make this as a, almost like a living diagram of what Jeep was and what it has become. You know, because literally at the very top left of my corner, I got this slat grill. And at the very bottom of my, you know, my garage, I've got a, a JT grill, you know, and, and just about everything in between with the exception, just a few of the late model, you know, more plastic style grills. Right. So the, the evolution and you've been able to find all those. So that's, that's just phenomenal. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's been fun. And then literally right now I have every single one up to 2005. My last one is the second model um, Liberty. And then after that, I would need to get like the commander and the Patriot and the compass and, you know, start getting into some more of those, which eventually I'll get, but haven't yet. Is there, is there <laughs> anything of, of, you know, back in the day that like your 35 V U hood or grill that is there some, is there that, that unicorn out there that you're looking for still? I actually just got another really rare one that's sitting at my dad's house right now. It actually is off a 1961 Willie's fleet van. And it, I think you're familiar with the fact that I'm in the current process of building a fleet van to be my daily driver, my handicap accessible vehicle. Right. And so they only made about a, about 1,800 of those for the post office back in the early 60s. And they were designed as right-hand drive, and you actually stood up to drive them. There was oh. no driver's seat. Um, you literally, the, the brake went straight up and down with your left foot. And your right foot stood on the ground and turned sideways to give it gas. <laughs> and um, I obviously have one because I have one on my actual fleet van that's being built. But I just recently had a guy that contacted me and said, hey, I've got some old fleet van parts. Would you be interested in them? Sure. What do you have? Oh, I've got this, that, and I've got a grill. Shut up. You've got a grill, <laughs> you know, and ended up the guy's like, you know what? 20 bucks and it's yours. And I mean, this is a grill you couldn't find. I mean, I probably couldn't find this grill for a thousand dollars if I was out there looking. That's and cool. so it's just been an interesting experience to be able to have these. That so many of them, I, I have no right to to claim that I did anything, but I just happen to be at the right place at the right time. Yeah, or people hearing that that that's what you do. Right. Yep. Right. Cool. Yeah. So what what's uh, what's next for David? What do you? Uh, how do you see the future playing out? Well, I think what I want to do is I'm going to, I'm going to continue to, to stay active in the off-road industry, of course. I mean, to me, that's, that's life. I mean, that's family. I mean, it's very rare that I go somewhere on vacation that doesn't either involve wheeling or involve visiting friends that I've met through wheeling because they're really some of the best people out there. I mean, I'm sure you've experienced this hundreds and hundreds of times. If you were to take two people that are into off-roading and put them in a room together more than likely they're going to get along well. Yes. Because we're all kind of a little bit crazy. We're all a little bit type A. We all like the outdoors. And we all just kind of have a screw loose. 
you know? <laughs> and, and that's kind of just who we are. And so yeah, the off-road world is, is, is me. I mean, that's what I'm going to be as, as long as I can do it for as long as I can. Um, I actually bought a comp buggy from Craig Stump, his old commando that I'm sure you've seen go through the entire process of changing. Absolutely. Um, yep, I bought that from him a couple of years ago and have just finished making some major changes. So I actually will be able to control the front axle with the joystick so I can get out. So I'm hoping to be able to do some competitions, probably not this year because life's been kind of crazy this summer, but I'm hoping next year I'll be able to go out and do some of the competitions with that and you know, keep doing trail hero, keep doing the different events, keep doing the hero for a day and, you know, just living life as long as I can every day that I can. Excellent. That's good. David, I want to say thank you so much for joining us with Conversations with Big Rich and having a great conversation and learning, you know, you sharing your life and, you know, your passion for off-road and everything related to that, which it boils down to just like everybody else has said, you know, it really comes down to the personalities and the people that we meet. Yes, without a doubt. Yeah, and I appreciate you spending the time with us. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Rich. You have a great day. I appreciate your time. Okay, talk to you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember, live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.